Wildwood Community Church exists to glorify God by connecting people to Christ, His worship, His community, and His mission. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. What I would like to do is invite you right now to take out the Word of God and turn in it in the New Testament to the book of Acts in chapter number 10, Acts 10. If you don't have an electronic version of the Bible or you don't have a printed version, there should be one under a chair in front of you and you could grab that one and turn in the back part to page 100 and you would find yourself at Acts chapter 10. I want to take us back in time a little bit this morning as we begin to remember that in New Testament times, Jews looked down on Gentiles. The Jews viewed the Gentiles as second-class individuals. They thought that the Gentiles were less significant to God than them. I mean, they were the chosen people. And generally, Jews viewed the Gentiles with scorn. Jews, in New Testament times, suffered from what I like to call a severe case of P and P, and that would be pride and prejudice. And it's, it's a little bit easy for us, looking back on those Jews and how they viewed the Gentiles, to maybe look down on the Jews. I mean, how backward of them to have pride and prejudice towards other people. But the truth is that at the core, in our own flesh, we're, we're just cut from the same bolt of cloth. We have the same tendency to look down on other people. The people we look down on may be people who do things that we do not approve of. People we look down on may be people who look differently from us, who come from a different background, a different race, a different place of origin. People we look down on may be people that, frankly, we just dislike. We just don't think well of those folks at all. We look at other people with some scorn. We've seen a lot of images on our screens recently of, in certain localities, some young blacks rioting in the streets. And certainly that was not a right thing to do, to break the law. But it's interesting how we can view people like that with some scorn. Maybe it's people who dress in Muslim-like garb and we make certain judgments about them. Maybe it's politicians. I mean, look at our politicians today. Maybe you view many of them with scorn. Where are the honest ones? Where are the effective ones? Maybe we look at Hispanics with scorn, or maybe if you come from another perspective, you look at wealthy whites with scorn. And certainly in Latvia, I can tell you that the Latvians struggle with having some scorn towards the Russian people who have been on top of them for multiple generations and still reside next to them. Who do we look at with some scorn Maybe somebody with spiked orange hair and 12 piercings, you know, above the neck. Uh, Maybe it's somebody who rides a Harley and they're slathered with tattoos and they're wearing their leather jacket with their bike colors on there. You know, when we tell a racial joke or we tell an appearance joke, it's just a giveaway that we're struggling some with a case of P and P ourselves. And whatever the group may be that we tend to view that way with some pride and prejudice and some scorn, if we're honest, you know, deep down inside of us, 
we're really unwilling to pray for people like that. We're certainly unwilling to seek to share the gospel with people like that because we're thinking deep inside of ourselves, God doesn't really care for those people. You know, there's this inner whisper, they're not really worthy of salvation like I am. And I just believe, I'm including myself at the forefront here, that our need is very similar to the need that Peter has in Acts chapter 10, and that is a need to be liberated from P and P. A need to view people the way God views people. We've been involved for a while in our series we've entitled Seeds, the Acts of Jesus Through the Church. And 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 the whole book of Acts blows out into three sections around the themes of plant, scatter, grow. And we're in that middle section, which stresses the scattering of the church out. I've titled the message today, Pride and Prejudice. And I think God wants to deal with all of our hearts. I would invite you to follow along in your Bible as I read the first 16 verses of Acts chapter 10. Verse 1 says, Now there was a man at Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian cohort, a devout man, one who feared God with all his household and gave many alms to the Jewish people and prayed to God continually. And about the ninth hour, which was 3 p.m. of the day, he clearly saw in a vision an angel of God who had just come in and said to him, Cornelius. And fixing his gaze on this angel and being much alarmed, he said, what is it, Lord? And the angel said to him, your prayers and alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now dispatch some men to Joppa and send for a man named Simon, who was also called Peter, He is staying there with a tanner named Simon, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who was speaking to him had left, Cornelius summoned two of his servants and a devout soldier of those who were his personal attendants, and after he explained everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. And on the next day, as they were on their way and they were approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour, which is noon, to pray. But he became hungry and was desiring to eat. But while they were making preparations, he fell into a trance and he saw the sky opened up and an object like a great sheet coming down, lowered by four corners to the ground. And there were in it all kinds of four-footed animals and crawling creatures of the earth and birds of the air. And a voice came to him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything unholy and unclean. And again, a voice came to him a second time, what God has cleansed, no longer consider unholy. This happened three times, and immediately the object was taken up into the sky. Now, as we seek to understand this passage of Scripture today, our plan is to tackle three things. Number one, we're going to pause and give a little more historical background Secondly, we're going to look at the affirmation of God, of Peter, in the end of chapter 9, verses 32 to 43, and then we're going to look at God's challenge for Peter in chapter 10, verses 1 to 33, even though we didn't read all of that. So let's just pull back again. We want to just have an understanding, because there's a lot happening here of the historical background. 
Remember, the Jews, when it came to the Gentiles, definitely had a severe case of P and P. And you can see that in a lot of different ways. One of the ways was the way that they addressed the Gentiles. They had a name for the Gentiles, which was Goyim. And they would use that with some disdain. Oh, that's the Goyim. I don't want to be around the Goyim. You know, you won't have anything to do with Goyim. You know what the Goyim are like. Now, Goyim just meant nations, but they had a disdainful, a disdainful tone when they talked of the Gentiles. They viewed the Gentiles as being very different from them. They dressed differently. They acted differently. They saw them as unclean. They saw them as having low character. In fact, one of the common terms they would use to describe a Gentile was the term dogs. And when they said that Gentiles are dogs, they were not doing that in an American way. They were doing that in a Mexican way. What I mean by that? Well, in America, we hold dogs real highly. We name them, we groom them, we feed them, we give them fancy things. In Mexico, it's not that way. I mean, dogs are, are dogs. They don't even give them names. Everybody's dog is dog. And they, they view them as a low form of life. And that's the way they meant it when they called the Gentiles dogs. They viewed the Gentiles with being, as being very different and, and with a lot of disdain. And, and in part, that was because God had called, remember, Israel to be a distinct nation among the nations. And he'd given them moral guidelines and he'd given them eating guidelines so that they would be distinct. That's part of the reason why they leaned that direction. But in part, it was because they had been mistreated by the Gentiles. If you know your Bible history, you know that the Assyrians came down in the northern kingdom and took the ten, the ten tribes captive. Then the Babylonians came into the southern kingdom, took the two tribes and then move them away. And then they are now under the Romans. And all of those people, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Romans were Gentiles. And all of this background had evolved into this severe case of P and P. And I just want to illustrate to you how far it went. For example, in that day, if a Gentile just touched a jar of wine, immediately the wine that was inside was considered to be polluted. A Jew could not sell animals to the Gentiles, to the Goyim, nor could they buy animals from the Goyim. Even if you had a Gentile, a Goyim woman who was getting ready to give birth, you couldn't assist her in doing that. We don't want too many of the Goyim, you know, being born into the world. And in some circles in the Jewish community, marrying a Gentile, a Goyim, was a capital offense. The Mishnah, which is the Hebrew commentary on the Old Testament, in one place says this, quote, Gentiles have no share in the world to come. And remember, if you were a Jew, you have been eating kosher from the beginning of your life. It was a big distinctive. It was drilled into you as a toddler. This is what we eat. And all of that historical background created a huge severe case of P&P, pride and prejudice. All of that, even though in Luke chapter 2, at the birth of the Messiah, it was said of the Messiah that the Messiah will be a light to the Gentiles, to the Goyim. All of this still existed, even though Jesus had said to the disciples, you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the innermost parts of the world. You know, when you come to Acts chapter 10, I hope you realize, do you, do you realize it's been seven to 10 years 
since the day of Pentecost? Maybe a decade of the church era has existed and there are no Gentiles in the church. You see, there's this deeply ingrained prejudice that had an emotional hold on them. And there was a reluctance to reach out to the Gentiles. You know, when you have prejudice, the root of prejudice is always the same. The root of prejudice is pride. It's me thinking, I am better, I'm more deserving, I'm more holy, my way is the right way. Other people are inferior in some way, maybe intellectually, maybe culturally. The other thing about it, it's interesting about pride and prejudice, recovering from prejudice is a process. It's not something that you just do like this, the snap of a finger. Because you have to counter a lot of ingrained emotions that you have. So I, I said all of that just so you have a little historical background to what we're getting ready to look at. Second thing we want to do is we want to look at the affirmation by God of Peter, which occurs at the end of chapter 9, verses 32 to 43. We're just going to have to back up a little bit because I want you to see this. Now, what's interesting is, you remember what happens in chapter 9? We have the, the amazing U-turn, right, of Saul who becomes Paul as he is converted and he is going to be the minister to the Gentiles. And then we have chapter 10 where we have the Gentiles actually coming into the church. And then we have these two miracles that are the end of chapter 9. And, and some commentators, when they look at these two miracles, it's almost as if this is sort of a, some random thing. Oh, we just have a couple miracles thrown in here. Why are they there? Well, I think they're there for a reason. Because Jesus wanted to affirm Peter. He is about to stretch Peter. I mean, really stretch Peter. And Jesus knows that it is a process to get over P and P. And anytime you have to be stretched, it's a hard thing. And I believe what's happening in these two miracles that are recorded at the end of chapter 9 is God affirming Peter. Peter, I want you to know I am with you. I'm going to ask you to do something that's going to be hard, but I'm with you. I'm with you, Peter. So let's just take a quick look at him. We're not going to spend a lot of time here. Look at verse 32. First of all, we have the healing of Aeneas. And uh, it says that Peter was traveling through the regions, and he came down to this town called Lydda. Now, by the way, I understand that Lydda is approximately where the Tel Aviv airport is located in Israel today. He comes to this place named Lydda, and there's this guy there named Aeneas who had been bedridden for eight years, and he was paralyzed, paralyzed guy. And in verse 34, Peter says to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and make your bed. Now, if you are a parent of teens, that phrase, get up and make your bed, has come out of your mouth a lot, and you would consider it a miracle if your teen got out of bed and, and made their bed. But that's, that's basically what he says. Get up and make your bed, and immediately he got up. Now, what's really interesting is there's some real parallel between this particular miracle and one that Jesus performed in John chapter 5. 
same kind of wording is used. Now, now what, why is this happening? I believe that God is at work through Peter here. And Jesus is trying to communicate, Peter, same kind of miracle I did, you have done. I'm with you, Peter. I'm with you, Peter. I'm with you, Peter. By the way, there's a lot of theology. Anytime you see healings in the New Testament by Jesus or by the apostles, there's two things you always see with them, whether the healings of Jesus or the healings of the apostles. Number one, their healings are instantaneous and complete. Very different from what we see with these guys who go around on what I call the healing tours, you know, and people come to the healing tour meetings and they're being wheelchairs and then they're healed and they sort of get up and they sort of stagger around, you know, as they get out. That's, that's not the way the New Testament healings were from Jesus and the apostles. Second thing you note about their healings is they healed organic diseases and conditions. In other words, their healings were indisputable. Nobody argued with any of them. They weren't just healings of, you know, bad backs or healings of headaches or healings of some form of hidden cancer. They were clearly organic diseases and conditions. And so as Peter does this healing, it's a confirming sign by God that he's validated as an apostle. It's validating the truth of the gospel that he is preaching. So that's the first one. Second, verse 36 and following. It says, now in Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha. Now, I want you to understand the flow of what's going on here. God is working on Peter's heart. And recovering from prejudice is a process. And so, there is this person named Tabitha that's in Joppa. Now, you ever think, oh, Joppa, 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 where have I heard that name before? If you know your Old Testament, you'll know that Joppa is where Jonah got on a ship to avoid taking the message of salvation to Nineveh. And remember, the Ninevites were goyim. They were Gentiles. And Peter is soon going to get a call to go to the Gentiles. And, and I don't think this was lost on Peter. This happens in Joppa. It's almost like, Peter, are you going to be like Jonah? Or are you going to take the message to the Gentiles that I want you to take? So in Joppa, there's this particular disciple by the name of Tabitha. Her, her name in Greek translated was Dorcas. And it tells us in verse 36 that she was abounding in deeds of kindness and charity. And we know particularly what she was doing by verse 39 because when she dies, which is about to happen, there's all of these widows who show up and they have all this clothes, these tunics and these garments that she had made for them. And this lady, Tabitha, was, if you would, a one-woman benevolence ministry. <laughs> and you do remember, there were no government programs in that day. And the most desperate people in society would be widows. And so here we have an individual who is doing these abounding good deeds of kindness and charity for these individuals. If someone came up to you and said, how can you be fruitful in the Christian life? What would you say? Well, one aspect of being fruitful in, in the Christian life is what she was doing. 
In Titus 3.14, addressed to the church, it says this, we must learn, this is talking to the church, to engage in good deeds, to meet pressing needs, so that we will not be, what? Unfruitful, reverse it. If you want to be fruitful, what do you do? You engage in good deeds to meet pressing needs. I want want to share with you something that sort of frustrates me about the church in general. I don't mean just Wildwood, but the church at large. And that is, a lot of times, it seems to be that the perception is that the most important people in the church are the upfront teachers. And yet those who have gifts of kindness or those who have gifts of doing good deeds to meet pressing needs are somehow sort of on a different level. But you know what's amazing is I think people who have gifts of kindness and and are able to do good deeds to meet pressing needs, I think they have deep, deep impact. And we see that in this woman named Tabitha. In fact, in James 1, verse 27, it says this, this is pure and undefiled Religion. If you want to get down to the purity of it all, in the sight of God our Father, to visit orphans and widows in their distress. And to visit means more than just say hello. Hey, how are you all doing? It means to visit them with a view to meeting needs. The most important people aren't just the people who are up front teaching these are the kind of people who make a huge impact. How do you think God might want to use you when it comes to doing good deeds to meet pressing needs? Well, anyway, in verse 37, it happens that she falls sick and she dies, and they wash her body. They lay it in an upper room. And since Lida was near Joppa, the disciples heard Peter was there, and they sent to him and said, hey, would you come over here? Now, it's really unclear why they were asking him. I don't know that they were actually anticipating that she would be raised from the dead. In fact, no apostle historically yet in the New Testament in Acts had raised anybody from the dead. And remember, Stephen, who gets under a pile of stones dead, he stayed dead. So I don't know that there was necessarily any anticipation there was going to be a resurrection from the dead. Maybe they just wanted him because she was so significant in the church to come and officiate her memorial. I don't really know. But he gets there, and verse 40, Peter sends them all out of the room, and he kneels down, and he prays, and he turns to the body, and he says, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up, and he gave her his hand and raised her up, and calling the saints and the widows, he presented her alive. Now, you might not notice this, unless you compare the original text, but there's a huge parallel again here to what Jesus Christ did in Mark chapter 5. In Mark 5, a little girl dies. And what is interesting there is that the Lord Jesus asks everybody to leave the room. It's the same way Peter asks everybody to leave the room. See, God's power doesn't need a large audience. And Peter says... To her, Tabitha, arise. And we put it up on the screen. Here's what Jesus said to that little girl. The little girl is Talitha. Talitha, arise. Here he says, Tabitha, arise. One letter difference. See, I think Jesus is saying, Peter, I'm on your side. I'm using you. 
I'm at work in you. This is a confirmation and an affirmation. I'm with you, Peter. I'm with you. And I want you to understand when I'm getting ready to ask you to stretch your faith, I'm with you. Remember, I, I was with you when you resurrected Tabitha from the dead, just like I did the little girl. I want you to remember that when I'm getting ready to stretch your faith. And I think Peter was beginning to get the message. Look at verse 43. It's kind of interesting. It says, Peter stayed many days in Joppa, and then it says this little phrase, with a tanner named Simon. I don't really know how it went down. You know, maybe Peter was saying, hey, I'd like to stay around for a few days. Who can I stay with? Hey, we've got this guy named Simon over here. He's a tanner. You can stay with him. Now, to a Jew, you don't stay with a tanner. I mean, a tanner was considered to be a ridiculed trade because you had to touch, you know, somebody who works with leather, dead carcasses in order to use your material. They were considered totally unclean. And I don't know what Peter did when they said, hey, we, we got a place for you to stay. It's with the tanner. I don't know if he went, uh, I, but I think God was beginning to get through to him, and so he agrees to stay. It was just another step in the process for Peter. Then that brings us to the challenge for Peter uh, by God in chapter 10. Uh, verses 1 to 33. And we'll, we'll just go through this because we've read a lot of it. We'll go through it pretty quickly. You have Cornelius's vision in verses in 1 to 8. It says that there was a man at Caesarea. Now, now Caesarea, another city, was named after Caesar Augustus. You can get the idea. Caesar, you see Caesar in that name. And from that name, you can surmise that this was the Roman ruling capital of Judea. This is where most of the Roman forces were. And there was this guy from Caesarea named Cornelius. He was a centurion. He was a commander of 100 soldiers. He was part of the Italian cohort. That would be about 300 to 600 or three to six centurions with 100 men each. And they were from where? Italy. Italy is Gentiles, all right? So you have this guy and by the way, I find it interesting to me because he's viewed in a very positive light, cast in a very positive light here. It's interesting to me, when I look through the New Testament, I see God not being anti-military or anti-police. And in fact, it's interesting to me that we have a number of centurions in the New Testament and the Gospels and later on who are portrayed in a very favorable light. In Matthew chapter 8, you remember how Jesus said regarding a centurion, there's not anyone in Israel that has such faith as this Goyim centurion. On the cross in Matthew 27, it is a centurion who said, surely this was the Son of God. You didn't have any Jews making such a statement. And later on, we're going to see in Acts in chapter 27, there's a centurion who protects Paul and, and uh, the prisoners with him from being killed when there's a, a shipwreck. So we have this centurion, and he's described as devout. He feared God. He gave alms to the Jews. You know, it tells you volumes about people when you see how they use their money. And it says that he prayed to God. As far as we can put it together, this guy... Uh, Cornelius was weary of the Roman pantheon of gods, the Jupiters and the Mars and the Venus. And, and, and we know from chapter 11, verse 14, he had this desire to get into a right standing with God. He just didn't really quite know how to do it. So at 3 p.m., he sees this angel. The angel comes in. What is it? 
And he says, your prayers have been, have been noticed by God. We want you to send some men to Joppa. There's a guy named Simon Peter who's staying with another guy named Simon who's a tanner, and his house is by the sea. And so then he gets two of his servants and, and one of his dedicated soldiers, and he explained everything to them, and he sends them on to Joppa. Now, pause for just a moment. Where is Cornelius? Caesarea. Do you know who else is in Caesarea? Philip is in Caesarea. We learn from the end of chapter 8, he was traveling around. Philip, it says, he went to all these cities, and then he came and he stayed in Caesarea. Now, here's a pop quiz for you, okay? Cornelius is in Caesarea. Philip is in Caesarea. Why doesn't the angel say, hey, right down the street, there's Philip. Why don't you go talk to him? What's the answer to that question? You remember we talked about this? Peter had the keys. Remember, he was present when the Jews came into the church. He was present when the Samaritans came into the church. And he's going to be present when the Gentiles come into the church. Well, then we have Peter's vision, verses 9 to 16. You remember this? They're on their way. Peter's up on the housetop. It's noon. He's famished. He's ready to eat. Someone says, I'll go and prepare it. And while he's waiting for this and he's so hungry, he falls into this trance and he sees the sky open up and an object like a great sheet comes down. It's lowered by four different corners. And there were in it all kinds of four-footed animals and crawling creatures of the earth and birds of the, the, the air. A voice comes to Peter, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Get up, Peter, kill and eat. Now, now just, you see how God is working here? God's sovereign his providence is at work. The timing of all of this is exactly perfect. There's a little humor here because it's noon and he's hungry. You know, when you're hungry, it will heighten your attention to a vision of a bunch of animals. But Peter had been kosher all of his life. And there were all kinds of these creatures there. In verse 13 voice said to him, get up, Peter, kill, and eat. Now, I want you to know, I worked hard this week. I searched and searched and searched, trying to find a picture that showed exactly what Peter saw on the sheet, and I finally found it. I want you to see it right here. <laughs> now, I don't, I don't know about you, but Jabba the Hutt, I could see killing him. I can't see eating him. You know, what, now, of course, that isn't the way that it happened at all. You had this sheet that came down with four corners, probably a picture of the four directions of the compass, and there were all kinds of animals on that. There were sheep on that, which were approved for a Jew to eat, and there were also things like pigs and lobsters, which were not part of the directions for a Jew. And God says to him, kill and eat. My economy, Peter, is changing. Now, I love Peter's response in verse 14. God says, Peter, kill, eat. Peter says, by no means, Lord. You have an NIV, it says, surely not. Another translation says, no way. 
Aren't you glad there's someone in Scripture who's like us? You know, when God wants us to do something and we're going, whoa, 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 by no means, surely not. No way, I'm not doing that. But Peter was learning. I want you to know Peter was learning. In fact, he's toned it down quite a bit when he sort of objects, when the Lord says, you need to do such and such. You know, in John 13, when Jesus said, I'm going to wash your feet, Peter, he used the strongest negative possible in the Greek language. No way, Jose, ever, ever, ever are you going to wash my feet. When, when Jesus said in Matthew 16, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and be killed, he used that same ultra strong language. No way, that's never, ever, 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 ever going to happen that you're going to be killed. And he's toned it down quite a bit here. He doesn't use any of that language. It's just, by no means, Lord, surely not. No way. Verse 15, voice came to a second time. What God has cleansed no longer considered to be unholy. In other words, God was saying, my plan, Peter, is to reach people that you have considered to be unworthy, that you have scorned, that you look as different, you dislike them, you look down on them, you think that I don't really care about them, but I want to reach them. And then in verse 16, it says, this happened three times. That ring a bell with Peter? Remember, he denied the Lord three times. Three times Jesus said to him, do you love me, Peter? Three times. Three times the message had to come to him again. Peter's just struggling with the process. He's suffering from P and P. I love what Kent Hughes says. He says this, that we, too, shut out whole ethnic groups because of a bad experience with one person or family. We, too, mentally excommunicate those who do not agree with us on one issue or another. Our sheets easily fill with educational, racial, cultural, and spiritual rejects, and we cry, by no means, Lord, they're not my type. The result, of course, is a Christianity that grows solely on homogenous lines. We then only seek to win our own kind, and thousands never come to grace who, humanly speaking, would have if they were given the chance. He goes on to say, the tragedy is compounded by the fact that, like Peter, we can have these unacceptable attitudes even while generally being in fellowship with Christ. Remember, Peter was praying when he had this vision. He had a beautiful attitude toward God, but a lousy one toward the world. Verse 17 Peter was greatly perplexed in mind as to what this really meant. He was still processing the full meaning of all of this. And while he's still processing, we have the arrival of the contingent in verses 17 to 23. I find it kind of funny. It says in verse 19, while Peter was reflecting on the vision, the Spirit said to him, behold, three men are looking for you. Three again. Another three. And he says to him, get up, go downstairs and accompany them. Go with them without misgivings. I don't want you to hesitate. I don't want you to make a judgment. I just want you to go. And then something really interesting happens. Wherever he was staying here at Simon's house, this is what Peter does, verse 23. He invited them in. What? He did what? Goyim? You weren't supposed to do that as a Jew to invite the Gentiles into your home. And he invited them in and gave them lodging. I think he realized that God was teaching him the walls were coming down 
in Peter's mind in life. Then you have the meeting that he has with Cornelius in verses 24 to 33. Um, verse 24, the following day he got to Caesarea and Cornelius was waiting and he'd called together his relatives and close friends. I mean, his extended family was there, his neighbors were there, his military associates were there. And something else very interesting happens in verse 25. It says, and Peter entered the house. It's one thing to have Gentiles into your home, but you weren't even supposed to walk into the a goyim home, and what does he do? He goes in. His first time in a Gentile home his entire life. One small step for man, one giant leap for the kingdom of God. And he gets in there, and Cornelius meets him and falls at his feet and starts to worship him, and Peter goes, no, 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 stand up. I'm just a man. I mean, God's working on prideful Peter, isn't he? And then you come to verses 28 and 29, and here's what I think. I think sometimes we don't get enough into the Bible to read it the way that it was probably said. And you can see in verses 28 and 29, you can sense Peter's nervousness, his uneasiness, his uncomfortableness with this situation. I think it, it came off something like this. He's into the Goyim house. And he can't believe it's the first one he's ever been in. And so he says to them, you know, <laughs> you, you, uh, you yourselves, you, uh, uh, you, you know, you know who you are. Uh, you know how it's, uh, you know, what's a good word? Unlawful, unlawful for a man who is a Jew, that, that's, that's what, what, what I am, to associate, you see, with um, a, 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 a foreigner or to even visit him. And yet, yet you know, I have, I have to admit that God has shown me that I, I really shouldn't call any man. That would, would, would include you, you here as unholy or, 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 or um, uh, unclean. And, and that, that, that's really why. I just wanted to know, this is why I came without even raising an objection when I was sent for. And so, so uh, you know, I, I would... I would just like to ask you the reason, why have you sent for me? That's the, the way that it went down. That's the way that it went down. And then in verses 30 to 33, Cornelius just relates his story, the vision that he had. Now, I want to just hit the pause button right there. We're going to stop because next week we're going to see a spiritual tsunami that happens as the Gentiles enter the church. And, and men, we're going to go back to our roots back to our roots next week. But what I want to do is just talk about some life response from what the passages we've looked at today. And I just want you to know there's two things that just stick out to me. First one is this. It's a question for me and a question for you, and that is where am I on the spectrum of pride and prejudice? How do I view people who are different than me? How do I view people who do things I do not approve of? How do I even view people who I may dislike? Do I view those kinds of people who are different, who do things I don't approve of, who I may dislike as candidates for the kingdom? Do I, do I view those kind of people as a potential heir of grace, or do I tend to just write them off as unworthy? Do I say to God, by no means, Lord, Surely not, not, the, not those folks. No way. I don't know if you saw any of the interview with Bruce Jenner. You know, an American hero who 
now wants to go transgender and become a woman. I haven't watched the entire thing back to back, but I've seen huge clips of it. You know, I was watching that. It certainly makes me feel uncomfortable. Someone wants to become transgender. But I was watching that, and I tell you, you know what? I saw something as he was relating his account and his story. I saw, I saw a lot of pain. I saw weeping, tears running down his cheeks. I saw a lot of confusion. And I immediately said, I got to pray for that guy. I got to pray for Bruce Jennifer. Where am I on the spectrum of pride and prejudice? Second thing that sticks out to me comes from chapter 9, and that is what Peter said to Aeneas when he said to him, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up. And maybe you're here today and you're trapped in addiction. And Jesus has a message for you. He wants to heal you and say, get up. Maybe you're here and you're overwhelmed by rejection and loneliness. Maybe you've fallen into deep failure. Maybe you've made a grievous mistake in your life. And Jesus' message to you is, I want to heal you. Get up. See, his power is ready to transform you at the point of your greatest need. That's why Jesus died for you. And he wants you to come to him by faith. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this book again. I'm just so grateful for the Bible. I'm so grateful for the reality that it teaches us, for the light it shines on our own hearts. And Lord, we want to admit openly that everybody needs compassion. Everybody needs forgiveness. And the great news for every one of us is that Jesus Christ is mighty to save. Amen.